News Weekly is an ad-free listener-supported podcast made possible by listeners like you. Just go to patreon.com slash Shah. that's S-A-M-I-S-H-A-H, to support the podcast. Also, I'm the new host of Ear to Asia, a podcast by the University of Melbourne's Asia Institute, where I get to talk to some of the top academic experts around the world about current issues in Asian politics and culture. It's a much more serious and substantive show, and the latest episode is all about China's newly announced Global Civilization Initiative. That's Ear to Asia, available wherever you get your podcasts. Top stories of the week. Boats and broom bring back bigots. Also, Melbourne solves the Middle East. All that and more on Newsweek. Hello and welcome to Newsweekly, where we punch the news in the headlines weekly. A swift response to asylum seekers, news now. It turns out maybe the only thing actually stopping the boats all this time was Scott Morrison. Because in the last few days, Australians discovered that boats filled with asylum seekers have been secretly making their way to Western Australia. Here's the ABC's Erin Park, reporting on the single most country WA story in the most country WA manner possible. It's believed a total of 24 men have arrived unexpectedly here at the Beagle Bay community, which is a small Aboriginal community on the coast about 120 kilometres north of Broome in the Kimberley region of northern WA. From what we've been told, the saga started early this morning when a local family that lives on a bush block out of town came across 21 of the men walking down a bush track surrounded by bush on both sides. For listeners not in Australia, you have to understand that bush is basically an Aussieism for any region that's barely inhabited. And anything there just gets bush added to it as a prefix. So you get bush block, which is a block of land in the bush. And you get bush track, which is a walking track in the bush. If those boat arrivals had been there a day longer, they'd be bush refugees who landed on a bush boat and were looking for a spot to take a bush nap, get some bush burgers and take a bush shit. Also, excessive use of the word bush isn't the only country Aussieism the reporter uses in this story. There were locals sort of um, sticky beaking. They had found, they told us, three other men from the same group, apparently from the same boatload. It's the wet season, so it's very humid. If this story got any more country WA, it'd go walkabout and end up eating a kangaroo meat pie while taking in a skimpies the next time it goes shopping at the closest country target 200 kilometres away. So it turns out 39 men from Pakistan and Bangladesh arrived on Indonesian fishing boats. This despite all the resources put in place by Australia's notorious Operation Sovereign Borders, which is basically a military-led program that combines badly designed reverse tourism posters with naval patrols. How these men slipped through is unknown, although it could be because of most of Australia's resources in the last few days have been focused on tracking the movements of Taylor Swift and her boyfriend. Taylor Swift has spent her first day in Melbourne, touching down late last night ahead of the first of her seven sold-out Australian shows. We're about to rev it up more. Breaking news, uh, the jet has revved up. This is uh, pictures just in... 
and that that's Taylor's jet there. It's revved up now. According to Flight Tracker, it was actually due to take off about six minutes ago. Travis Kelsey has touchdown in Australia. Are you sure? He has Taylor Swift's lover boy (laughs) arriving at Sydney Airport just moments ago. He's just about to touch down, so he's at a flight level of 1,200 feet right now. I'm tracking it on my phone. He's coming in over Cornell. Taylor Swift has touched down in Sydney. Now, given that these arrivals, I'm talking about the boats and not Taylor Swift, have taken place under the Labour government, although technically Taylor Swift also did arrive under the Labour government, which shows you who she supports, how is the opposition treating it? The government needs to be honest and frank and open in relation to this issue. We don't know whether it's one or two boats that have arrived. Opposition leader Peter Dutton there, who was Minister for Home Affairs for several years overseeing sovereign borders, during which time he repeatedly stated that the operation cannot be open nor can it share how many boats arrived under his watch. But this does serve as a great distraction from a report released by former Defence Chief Dennis Richardson, which found that the Home Affairs Department under Peter Dutton oversaw, quote, an offshore processing regime being used as a slush fund by suspected criminals, end quote. Here's current Home Affairs Minister Claire O'Neill a few days ago in Parliament. Today our government released a landmark report by Dennis Richardson AC, who I think everyone in this chamber would agree is a person of absolutely unimpeachable integrity. Our government commissioned that report in the face of genuine questions being raised about the integrity of contracts in our offshore processing system. Mr Richardson was asked to review the contracts and examine whether any wrongdoing had occurred. And, Speaker, the findings in this report are genuinely extraordinary. What Mr Richardson found was that under the stewardship of the Leader of the Opposition, potentially hundreds of millions of taxpayer dollars were funnelled into companies which were engaging in alleged criminal wrongdoing. And under the Leader of the Opposition, hundreds of millions of dollars of it were put towards companies which are suspected of drug smuggling, arms dealing and money laundering. By the way, I had to rip that clip from the Parliament website because not a single news channel aired it in their bulletins, which you think would be a bigger deal that companies hired by the previous government to run offshore detention in Manus and Nauru have massive criminal backgrounds of their own. And at the very least, it should make the Labour government think twice about sending these new arrivals to those offshore centres given the same companies are still contracted to run things there. More than 40 asylum seekers have been flown to Nauru to be placed in a detention centre on the island. Maybe those asylum seekers can use their time on Nauru to write an album of average pop anthems and start dating a football player if they want Australia to welcome them here. Or maybe I'm just bitter because I couldn't get tickets to Pearl Jam in November. From the Yarra to the Docklands news now. The war on Gaza is still showing no signs of slowing down, with every day bringing new tragedies. Even when there might be some good news, it's quickly buried under the rubble of more tragedy. Israeli special forces last week rescued two of the hostages kidnapped on October the 7th by Hamas. But the military raid to free them reportedly left more than 70 people dead and dozens wounded. According to a BBC report, 27 children and 22 women were amongst those killed in that rescue operation. And those not killed directly in military raids and bombings are under increased risk of starvation. The World Food Programme has paused life-saving food deliveries to northern Gaza, saying aid convoys have endured complete chaos and violence due to the collapse in civil order. So, as of this recording, Gaza's official death toll has surpassed 29,400. 
Meanwhile, Israel is continuing to defend itself against the charge of genocide in the International Court of Justice, a defense that's probably not helped when the Minister of Social Equality and Women's Advancement, May Golan, says this in the Knesset. I am personally proud of the ruins of Gaza and that every baby, even 80 years from now, will tell their grandchildren what the Jews did when their families were murdered. Or when another Knesset member, Hanoch Milbitsky, told Arab member Ayman Ode, you will die, your children will die, your grandchildren will die, there won't be a Palestinian state, there never will be. But don't worry, it's all worth it, because when it's done, the Israeli government says it will have defeated Hamas. Although that's not what the Israeli public even believes anymore. A survey conducted by a leading Israeli think tank suggests that most Israelis don't believe that a so-called absolute victory is possible in Gaza. Israeli leaders have said their main goal is to eradicate Hamas. The Israel Democracy Institute found that 51% of Jewish respondents do not believe in such a victory. That number is even higher among Palestinian Israelis at 77.5%. While 55% of those who identified as right-wing say they don't believe Israel can completely destroy Hamas. Meanwhile, for left-wing respondents, that number increases to 85%. Protests have increased in Israel, demanding the focus turn to bringing home the hostages and the Netanyahu government resign. All of which means there's a growing desperation in both Israel and Gaza for some end to this horror, which so far has only really benefited the Netanyahu government, Hamas leadership, American arms dealers and Houthis who look like Willy Wonka. Rashid al-Haddad, also known as Tim Houthi Chalamet and Jihadi Depp. Sometimes you just want a man who will force women to live under Islamic extremist ideology, enlist child soldiers, target civilians and cause widespread famine. You'd be amazed how far great cheekbones can get you in this world. So, what can be done? Who will have a solution to this conflict? Who? can save Palestinian lives, return Israeli hostages safely, bring about a two-state solution and create a new pathway to peace in the Middle East. Who can we turn to for help? All while Melbourne City Councillors debated a motion calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. The meeting live-streamed on a screen outside. That's right, the Melbourne City Council has decided it's time to weigh in. A respected voice in both the Israeli Knesset and Hamas tunnels, the Melbourne City Council, decided it was time to wield its mighty influence on a foreign affairs issue that it has less impact on than a Pakistani in Preston with a podcast. As the council voted on whether or not it should scold Israel, protesters outside handled their emotions with all the calm and consideration this conflict has become renowned for inspiring. Outside Town Hall, 200 pro-Palestine protesters. Inside, a controversial vote on a Gaza ceasefire. Trying to join that meeting, five Jewish people walking through the impassioned protest on Swanston Street. One of the Jewish men ends up on the ground. His wife says she was also targeted. I could feel myself getting punched. Mark was obviously getting punched and pushed. Sharon and husband Mark say police told them not to come back for 24 hours. So while Jews were getting punched for walking, the vote was cast. The debate lasted more than four hours. The Deputy Lord Mayor had the deciding vote. The motion is not supported. Shame on you! Shame on you! Shame on you! Ultimately, my view was that it was going to do more to divide Melburnians 
then unite them. So are there more productive uses of the Melbourne City Council's time? The council has unanimously agreed to a second amended motion. They've committed to adding extra resources to the graffiti removal team to target anti-Semitic and Islamophobic graffiti within an hour of being reported. The City of Melbourne is also advocating to both state and federal governments to have additional mental health support for local Palestinian and Jewish communities who are really hurting at this time. See, those are actually good policies. So things can be achieved when you don't overthink your own influence. Okay, let's pause here. Because daddy, daddy's got a rant building. Look, the entire situation is fucked every which way. And you know it's fucked every which way because every time you try talking to anyone about it, it's never about what's happening now and it's always about prosecuting what happened 75 years ago or random events since then which somehow we're all experts on. But when we look at what's happening now, there's only one possible solution which is to end the bombing of Gaza and for all the hostages still alive to be returned. Then for the entire current Palestinian leadership and Israeli government to be walked into either a river or a sea and Palestinians and Israelis start afresh with new voices and new approaches. But that's never going to happen because there's too many random assholes like me with opinions on it all that don't matter. Because you know who doesn't care about what Australians think of this conflict? Israelis and Palestinians. We're as influential here as Steven Seagal is on Putin's Ukraine military strategy. In fact, I'm going to really go all out and alienate everyone right now, but fuck it. White people, sit this one out. Seriously, this is between Jews and Arabs. It's not even about me. I'm South Asian, not my fight. If your fingers don't smell of olives and you don't sound like a camel deep-throating a cactus every time you speak in a native language, shut the fuck up. Let them sort this out. Every protest I see, there's three Arabs and a hundred white people with kefirs, which they then wear to Woolworths like it wasn't popularized by Yasser Arafat to hide his third chin. Or Sky News has one random race from the Australian Jewish Association being cheered on by gormless, pudgy white men in suits and of course Douglas fucking Murray every time. Everyone, go home. If you're on the left, put your Free Palestine poster up next to your Vote Yes poster, next to your I Stand With Stand poster, next to your black Instagram square and shut the fuck up. If you're on the right, stop supporting Israel because you think it's an ethno-state and you fantasize about living in your own ethno-state because you're ignoring the existence of the Israeli Arabs even more than Ben Gvir wants to and just admit that you don't like Palestinians because they're a little too Muslimy. And by the way, can we stop making lists of Jews on WhatsApp? Can we agree that no list should ever be made of Jews ever, 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 ever again? Especially by white people? You have a not great history of Jewish list making. You know what? Even if you're a party planner and you've been hired to organize a bat mitzvah, just memorize the names. Don't write them down. And stop trying to support Arabs either. It never ends well. Have we learned nothing from Lawrence of Arabia? And look, I'm talking mostly to the left here because obviously that's my camp. You're my people. I can't convince people on the right because I'm not a massive unrepentant bigot. I mean, I am, obviously, but against different targets. It's mostly BMW drivers for me that I want them lined up and shot.
People are being doxxed. Events from both sides are being cancelled. Everyone has to pick a camp or they're guilty of being complicit in genocide. At some point, all of this became about the ego of a bunch of irrelevant white Australians on the left who think their Instagram posts are what will make a difference in the conflict. I get when Palestinians and Lebanese and Israelis and even Jewish Australians feel directly confronted and traumatised. This is about them, for them, by them and to them. Everyone else Chill the fuck out. Look, I know it's upsetting. I know you can get flooded with news and footage and clips of bodies and dead children and it destroys your ability to think clearly. I know. I'm from Pakistan at the height of the war on terror. I've seen more dead bodies in suicide blasts than anyone ever needs to. Oh, and I got fired from a news job for supporting Gaza in 2021, before it was cool. So I know you feel like you need to do something and deep down you know you can't actually do anything. But you know what isn't doing anything worthwhile? Ripping down posters of hostages or calling anyone Jewish a Zionist because they've joined a WhatsApp group to support each other, which like every WhatsApp group you've ever joined, most people probably muted and a few random nut jobs dominated and you checked it once a week to see what the latest posters and ignored the rest. Also, clearly most of the people there were on the left as well because their only strategy was also to try cancelling. It's literally the only idea we leftists ever come up with. Also, the word Zionist means a lot of things to a lot of different ways to a lot of different people. Stop using it as an insult when you don't even know what it means. I'm not saying don't protest. I believe in the power of protest. I've got the taste for tear gas to prove it. But your protest needs to move past whether or not Israel should exist. Because guess what? Most of you think Australia shouldn't exist either, but I don't see you moving out. If you don't have the courage of your own convictions, don't demand the unreasonable from others. If the same protest or petition called for the return of the hostages and the surrender of Hamas along with ceasefire and Palestinian freedom, it would have more resonance and credibility. Otherwise, we just end up in a place where the biggest victim of this entire conflict in Australia is somehow fucking Clementine Ford. Okay, you can unsubscribe to the podcast now. Grim going in a gulag. News now. Jail Kremlin critic Alexei Navalny died earlier this week. And by died, I mean was definitely murdered. Well, just a reminder of our breaking story here on BBC News, and that is that in the past few minutes, Russia's prison authorities have announced that the leading Kremlin critic Alexei Navalny has died. A statement online said that Mr Navalny had felt poorly after a walk and lost consciousness soon afterwards. It added that doctors had arrived straight away, but that all attempts at resuscitation had failed. The Kremlin went on to describe the death of the Putin critic as, quote, natural causes, end quote, which is technically accurate in that being a critic of Putin will naturally cause you to be killed. That's it for this week's edition of News Weekly. If you're still listening and haven't checked out already after that rant, um, like I said, Ear to Asia is a podcast that I am hosting for the Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. It's going to come out every fortnight. It's got lots of previous episodes hosted by Ali Moore, who did it for several years before moving on to her job now on Drive on ABC Radio Melbourne. Uh, The podcast was offered to me, How Could I Say No? It provides such a great opportunity to talk to such incredible people with so much knowledge about what's happening in 
Asia these days. So that's happening. You can also go over to my Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Shah. That's S-A-M-I-S-H-A-H to support the podcast or just subscribe to the Patreon. You don't actually need to even pay. You can read most of my posts over there for free. Um, and also check out The Mist. That's M-I-S-S-E-D. My full cast production audio drama that I wrote. It's now won multiple awards, including the Australian Writers Guild Award, which I won most recently for writing that. So go check that out. That's available on Audible. I'm trying to do a thing with Audible where soon, hopefully, they'll announce that you don't actually have to have a membership to listen to it. You can just listen to it for free on the Audible website. So hopefully that'll happen soon. I'll keep you posted when it does. Otherwise, I'll see you right back here next week on News Weekly, where we punch the news in the headlines. Weekly.